Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode six of The Press with Chef Chad White. Thanks to everyone for listening and subscribing, all those who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Very much appreciate that. We're taking a break from sports to talk to Chad. Chad is a Spokane native, owner of Zona Blanca here in Spokane, one of a handful of restaurants he owns on the West Coast. You might know Chad from season 13 of Top Chef. He moved back to Spokane from San Diego, where he previously lived and worked shortly after that season of Top Chef. It was exciting to be in town and have him come back and kind of uh, join the culinary scene here. Really enjoyed picking his brain about the Top Chef experience, a show that I've watched a lot of, watched his season, of course, and just hearing how hectic and demanding that experience is, as well as how it has really benefited him going forward. One very interesting thing about Chad is how he got into the food world. It actually started as a result of 9-11, which got him into the Navy, which got him into the kitchen full time and has since gotten him to where he is now. And he's had a lot of success. Really fascinating just kind of talking to him about that whole process, coming into his own in the kitchen, and the success that he has had since. Very candid guy. He tells you what's on his mind. So always have a good time talking to him and picking his brain whenever I go into Zona Blanca. So I hope you enjoy it. Episode 6 of The Press with Chad White. So you, I mean, you've been on the road a bunch lately, haven't you? Man, I've been traveling so much. Um, I, I feel like I've been in Spokane nine days out of each month lately. So I've been doing a lot of things with obviously post Top Chef life, going and doing, you know, food and wine festivals, doing um, demonstrations for like big companies, doing, um, you know, uh, I did a speech. Two days in Portland uh, over last weekend, uh, just talking about my career and what it takes to be a chef, and you know what it takes to be an entrepreneur in this world, and the sacrifices and the peaks and the valleys, and so on and so forth. Um, and then I do a lot of charity work. Uh, it's still in San Diego, even though I've, I I'm not living there currently. Yeah, you mentioned kind of stuff that like post top chef stuff. How much has that? I would imagine opens a ton of doors for you once you're out. It really has. I mean, going on Top Chef was was it was fun it was a very nerve-wracking experience but like after top chef life is great you know you um my income got better not from like me being able to open up a bunch of restaurants or me landing a really rad job but companies that would hire me to come and speak about my experience or do a cooking demo for them um or be paid by visit seattle to come out and cook at a, a food and wine festival, you know, like uh, those kinds of things weren't happening on a regular basis outside of the market that I was in. So like in San Diego, I was very well known. I had been, I had built my, my career there for 16 years. Um, I was very involved in the community from, from, from a charity standpoint, from the chef community, from a business leader um, standpoint. And and winning all kinds of awards over the years. So like I, I, I did very well in that city, but like outside of it, I wasn't getting paid to fly to LA or fly to Denver or fly to New York to do an event. I was just, I was more of a local yeah. fixture versus a, a national fixture. Whereas now 
I'm flown, I mean, even out of the country to go and do these cool events. And I would do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I was wondering is like how much of a golden ticket is kind of this Top Chef uh, experience, especially if you're going to start a restaurant because you know, for me as somebody that's not like super in tune to the restaurant industry, mm. but you know, has seen seasons of Top Chef, you go somewhere and hear, oh, well, this guy was on season such, he opened a restaurant. Mm. Like that immediately would draw me in. Have you found that to be the case? Like in your experience and just kind of knowing the game and talking to other guys, like if, if you do Top Chef, do reasonably well, go out and start a restaurant, like are you gonna be able to do pretty well at least early on or is it still yeah. as risky as... No, absolutely. I think people give you the benefit of the doubt immediately because they're like, oh, well, if he made it on the Top Chef, there was probably who knows how many people that applied for that show and how many people were actually casted and there was only 17 or 18 people that actually made it on that season. And then you're in front of millions and millions of people who are watching it on Bravo TV. So you're put on a stage that you couldn't even imagine before you're on it. Um, and I mean, even, even the guys who get kicked off first, they're going out and, and landing great jobs yep. or opening restaurants and people are willing to, to um, finance them to do these projects because they believe that that name, that brand of Bravo Top Chef is huge. Hmm. I mean, I would say that probably 70% of America has probably seen an episode at least, or at least heard of it. Yeah. So there's an expectation, obviously, once you're on Top Chef, people walk in and they think that you're the god of food, <laughs> you know? And luckily I, I haven't, I don't think that I've fell below that, that line, <laughs> uh, at least here in Spokane, um, and, and even my restaurants in, in Southern California and Mexico, but, but it definitely puts you in a better position to make a better move. Whereas if I was just some Joe on the street, no matter if I had better cooking skills than a guy on Top Chef, yeah. the guy that was on Top Chef is gonna land the job before I will. Yeah. Was there any apprehension from your standpoint, like the timing of it coming from the season of Top <coughs> Chef and then making the move to Spokane when maybe you could have, I mean, you were in San Diego, go to LA, something mm -hmm. like that, and take advantage of kind of the branding and the hype that comes with Top Chef immediately thereafter in a bigger market. Yeah, no, I, so when I got onto Top Chef, I already had kind of an idea of what I wanted to do. I was really interested in moving to Mexico City and opening a restaurant. I had some investors that were very interested. Also, I had a group out of Guadalajara um, that were interested in me doing something. And because I had created a name for myself in Mexico already, it was making it very easy mm -hmm. down that direction. Obviously, Top Chef would catapult that uh, by tenfold. Mm -hmm. So I... I already had an idea that I wanted to do that, but when I got off of the show, I kind of had like an epiphany and I started thinking about like, what, what I want to do with life. If I move to Mexico City, what is, is it reasonable for my daughters to come and visit me there often? I mean, they're half Mexican, so it's not like mm -hmm. it's that of a strange uh, move for them to come and visit, but Mexico City isn't the most safe place. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to come there and go to school. They're probably not going to spend a whole summer there with me. Mm -hmm. So the amount of time that I would have with them would be limited because they spend majority of their time with their mother. So, you know, I, I had my brother-in-law and my sisters come down and visit me um, right after the show. We spent some time together talking and they were talking about the food scene and how it's been changing in Spokane, how they wish that there was some restaurants like what I had had in San Diego. And 
I should bring something up there and you know we're just kind of shooting the shit and uh, I don't know it kind of resonated with me and I remembered like my childhood and I, I kind of missed the you know a handshake means something here mm. in California a handshake doesn't mean a squat <laughs> unless you have a document that says this is what we're doing signed <laughs> by a lawyer yeah like that handshake you could cut it off yeah. you know so um, I came up here and visited uh, for my mother's birthday and it just felt so good and I, I, I drove around and you know I started to look at the buildings and the charm of it and I was like these buildings would go for so much money mm-hmm. in San Diego. They have so much charm. There's so much like history built into them. I could literally open a restaurant and do barely anything yeah. to the inside of these buildings and do great, yeah. you know? And uh, so I said, you know what? I think the pros and cons weigh in the benefit of going to Spokane. Yeah. And, you know, commit 10 years here lay my roots down, get my kids through high school, into college. <clears throat> and then, and then maybe at that point I could go live full time in Mexico. Yeah. So, so Mexico is the spot. Like that's the Mexico one. Mexico is my heart, man. I, I love it there. The culture there is, is, is phenomenal. The food is huge. Um, it's just, there's so much like when it comes to food for me, there's so much history behind the food in, in Mexico and where it came from and the influences that it has and the amount of ingredients. And, you know, I, I'm a guy that likes my mouth to be really excited. And, you know, they pack the sweet, the salty, the spicy, the sour. Mm-hmm. It's all of that, you know, and the hard work and the dedication to the craft down there. It's much different than the United States. I mean, we're kind of a, a privileged environment. Um, we don't work as hard as we probably should. It's not like back when our grandparents were <laughs> working elbows deep in, in a Ford. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's a it's a little bit different world up here. And I kind of like how it's a little bit behind the times when it comes to uh, innovation mm-hmm. and and people work for nothing down there. They should work. They should be awarded a lot more than they get. Um, but there's a lot less regulation. You can do so much. If I want to open up a restaurant on a ranch, I don't have to go through all these crazy regulations with the health department and whatnot. I know what I have to do. I mean, listen, we take our, our courses, you come out and you manage us, you make sure that we're doing things properly, but don't, you know, there's just so many building yeah. codes and, and whatnot. And, and down there, we can build things. They build them just as good as they build them here. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a lot less regulation. And I'm able to do really fun, cool things with food um, that I can't get away with up here because we have so many people who are sensitive to every little bit and piece of everything. Yeah. So I, I love it down there. I love the people. I love the language. Um, and it's slow. There's, there's a saying called Mexican time. People show up to dinner two hours late, you know, and it's just kind of laid back. It's, yeah. it's, it's relaxed, but you can, you can be as, as motivated or as least motivated as you want to be down there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think eventually I'll, I'll find myself opening my dream restaurant down there where I don't think that I could do it up here. Yeah. The one question I had about the, just to go back to the Top Chef thing briefly is like how the days are structured because you when you watch those shows it goes over weeks and weeks and it feels mm-hmm. like these people are together for months mm-hmm. for you guys i mean day to day 
I mean, doing like one elimination <coughs> challenge and then another the next day, like how hectic and how much of a frenzy is it when you're there and you're kind of going through the process? To be honest with you, it really just depends on how ahead of schedule the production team is. I mean, really? they're writing the story as it goes. Yeah. I mean, they have an idea of what their story is going to be and what they want things to go in a direction, but things change. Uh, obstacles change. The weather changes. Like, it's, it's always changing for us. Like, you never know what's going on. And kind of the cool thing, and this is the back behind the scenes, our season was a traveling season. So we spent the majority of our time in a hotel room. And in the beginning, you'd have a roommate because there was lots of people on the show. They would come in and they'd remove TV, alarm clock, magazine, anything that could ever promote any kind of ideas. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have a notepad other than the ones that they provided for you. Hmm. Um, they would they basically removed any kind of outside world because they didn't want you to be humming a song that they'd have to buy rights to <clears throat> they didn't want you to be getting creative ideas for a challenge they wanted to even the playing field which is great um, but when you weren't shooting you were sequestered meaning you were locked in your hotel room I mean, if there was an emergency, you could get out. But, like, you yeah. weren't allowed to leave without permission. If you wanted a smoke break, which I smoked on the show. I'm not a smoker. But it was the only way I could see, <laughs> like, real daylight and, like, get fresh air. Which was kind of fun because they put us up first at um, the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh -huh. And if anybody knows what the Roosevelt Hotel is, it's in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. So all the movie stars are coming in. So you're seeing, like, Dennis Rodman wall in. You're seeing, like, the Kardashians coming in. That's Little fun. Wayne's putting on a show. Drake's you know, in tow. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really cool to see a lot of this thing. People were rolling up in million dollar cars and we're just sitting out front smoking cigarettes. I'm not going <laughs> to chain smoke the hell out of cigarettes just so I didn't have to be in my hotel room. So when you're not shooting and you're not in your hotel room, you're being interviewed. Mm -hmm. So they put you in a dark room, they put up all the cameras and you literally are drilled. They want to get emotion out of you. They'll mm -hmm. say things about a challenge that maybe you screwed up on uh -huh. and they'll try to like, poke a little blood out of you and get you kind of riled up yeah. and then try to get you to talk shit about other people. You know what I mean? Because they want that like drama, you yeah. know? And I don't know how much I'm saying that I shouldn't say, but I think my contract's up, so screw it. So it's it, it was a very interesting dynamic. I tried to play very, you know, diplomatic in every situation. I didn't want to be in any other direction, which mm. had I have had like an extreme personality on the show, I probably would have stayed on a lot longer. Mm. Who knows, you mm. know? I don't know how they really choose the battles I mean the guys I was on with were the best of the best mm -hmm. I went in there owning four restaurants thinking that alright I have a chance yeah. you know there's probably going to be a home cook maybe a cafeteria guy a lunch lady some sous chefs three really badass chefs yeah. and then me right so I got a chance to be in the top five yeah everyone on that show there was like five James Beard award winners not nominees award winners Guys worked for 11 Madison Park, number one restaurant in America, was the number one restaurant for like two or three years running in the world, right? Uh, guys that worked for Thomas Keller per se, guys that worked at Boulay, guys that worked for um, Emerald Lagazzi, guys that were working for John George Fongerich. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all guys that like, I pay thousands of dollars to go and dine in their restaurant. Sure. I would save up months of salary to go and dine in these people's restaurants and like literally want to kiss the chef's shoes. <laughs> and I'm competing against their 
number yeah. ones. Yeah. You know? And so I, I freaked out, you know? And then the shooting of the show itself, you know, we would do a, uh, a quick fire challenge. Mm. We'd be read the rules and regulations of what that was, have to sign a contract. So we couldn't say like, oh, that wasn't part of the rules. For every challenge. For every challenge. Really? And then you would go into, uh, you, would, you would do that challenge. You'd finish that challenge, right? And then they'd say, okay, now here is your elimination challenge. Now we need to go to the store. And we'd drive to a Whole Foods, go shopping for the food, uh-huh. come back, put all of our ingredients away, and then ready, set, go. You have four hours to complete this task, and not only do you need to cook this food for an offsite event that we're doing tomorrow, you have to have it loaded in coolers, cooled down, cater wrapped mm-hmm. in in racks and all these things with all the equipment that you need. If you need ice, you better say it now. Like all these things. Yeah. So, and then it ends, right? And then there's you go back to the house uh-huh. or the the hotel. You do. Post uh, episode, <clears throat> kind of like we get back to the sh- back to that the hotel. We're drinking some beers. We're cheersing. We're eating some snacks. Maybe there's a meal, whatever. Yeah. You know, we're talking shit to each other, and then we go to bed. Right? Yeah. Well, some of us, some of us have to stay up and do an interview. I was right? gonna say. So now you're looking at a day that like was long at 16 hours, but maybe longer at 19. Yeah. And then you have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning the next day. How long were those? Like when they bring you in for an interview, how long do you think you're in there? Sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's six oh, hours. Man. Sometimes it's forty-five minutes. Yeah. Which is still a long yeah. time. Like if you were really active on the camera. Yeah. And you got like a lot of information out that they didn't have to like go back and like question, then it could be good. But if you were really active on the camera and there was a lot of questions to why you were so active. You could be seven hours being drilled. Wow. And, it, and sometimes they get behind. So you'll be doing like four episodes. Worth of interviews. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. You know? And so – and then there's travel days. Uh-huh. And travel day usually is breakfast, interview, in the van to the next location three, four hours away. Yeah. And then you land there. They film you arriving, mm-hmm. Right. Then you have to go through this like pre-battle, entering into this hotel. Wow, this is really cool. So much fun. I love this. Blah, 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 right? And then you read a card. This is your challenge. Meet me at the docks at this time tomorrow, uh-huh. right? And then they wake you up at the butt crack of dawn because they <laughs> want to see you walking through the fog, <clears throat> you know? And then you'll do your quick fire challenge. And then you'll do a portion of your other challenge. And it's just like... And sometimes you'd wait for the camera crew and the sound crew to come back. You'd be sitting outside in a parking lot in Los Angeles, like trying to find everything, like a cooler to lay on and take uh-huh. a nap. Yeah. Which. Good luck. Yeah. I mean, that's back pain for, for days, <laughs> right? Eating terrible food. Um, like they have every snack in the world you can imagine and yeah. tons of Pellegrino. So you're basically just filling yourself with bubbly water and shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then. They come back and they want you to do, after sitting in the parking lot for six and a half hours of doing nothing and not able to talk to anybody, when they say you're on ice, that means you can't talk to anybody because they don't want you to waste information Mm -hmm. that they want to get out of you firsthand in an interview. Yeah. When it's like the raw emotion and (laughs) frustration and all that. So there's like, there's actually not a lot of cooking going on. (laughs) I can't even imagine. That's the thing I always wonder when I watch those shows is just kind of the... 
the time frame, what the day-to-day is like. Because again, the pace of it when you're watching, it sets you kind of in this mood that it's way more laid back than you know that it actually oh, is. No. The thing that I had for, kind of forgotten, and I think I'd read about you when you came back to Spokane, all that, was, you know, I was curious about how you got to, obviously, San Diego and connections with Mexico. I'd forgotten. <coughs> I'd known that there was the Navy experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize until I was, I was looking stuff up yesterday that you enlisted on 9-12-01. 9-11. What? I thought it was the day after. No. It was the day of. Day of. Really? Day of. Yeah. So what were you, like, can you remember how you felt on that day? Because I was mean, just confused, angry. I think, I think I felt everything that everybody else did. Like, shocked. Like, wait, is this really happening? Is this a joke? You know, that could never happen. Yeah. Because uh, I think a lot of people had those feelings. I had those feelings. But it wasn't enough for me to say, I, I'm going to go and do something about it. I mean, I had nothing going on in my life. I was banquet attendant at the Doubletree in the Valley, which is now the Maribu, mm. and I was selling cars for my grandfather. So you, you had graduated at this point? Yeah. Okay. And so that, that just... It was my graduation year. I graduated in, in the summer, and that so was... So the, the following fall. September. Yeah. Why the Navy? It's the shortest line. I knew myself better than anybody else. <laughs> the line for Marines was literally around the block. And the line for the Navy was super short. And I was like, if I sit there and I listen to these guys talk about killing people and whatever is going on, because my, you know, I knew my father a little bit at that time. And I knew that he was in the Marines and I knew of other parents who were in the Marines and, and uncles that I had had that went into like the army and stuff for like infantry. Like I knew there was some like really dark roads, you know? And I needed to be basically signed up so there was no way out hmm. and so I, I i went to the fastest thing i possibly could <clears throat> i was going to go into the marines my mom begged me not to um and i i just knew i'd talk myself out of it if i sat in the line too long so it was literally i chose it because it was the shortest line but you wanted to do something i wanted to do something. i wanted to be a part of it some way um you know my thought was, oh, well, I'm going to go and be a Navy SEAL. I wasn't strong enough to be a Navy SEAL. Mm. I, I think I was physically strong enough. I wasn't mentally prepared for, you know, I did pre-buds in boot camp. And they have a, a basically a, a challenge for you. You have to do X amount of, like, swimming. Then you have to do X amount of push-ups. Then X amount of pull-ups. And, like, in and out of the water. And, like, it was intense. And then you had to, like, run forever. It was, it was just, it was way more than than I was really mentally capable of handling. Hmm. Um, physically, I think that I was fine. It's just I couldn't pull myself through the pain. And uh, <clears throat> the other thing was, is at the time I had only qualified for being a cook. So I would have had to take my ASVAB again to score higher in order to even get into butts. And I... You know, really how they sold it to me wasn't about being a cook. It was about being a hotel supervisor Hmm. because my rate was called an MS, a mess specialist. And there was two jobs that you had. One was you were uh, a cook and the other one, you were a barracks manager 
or a hotel manager. So you could work in the officer's barracks, you could work on the ship, you could do, you know, officers, um, their uh, staterooms and cleaning those kinds of things, or you could be cooking for them, or you could be running the Navy hotels. And so how they pitched it to me, because I was already working in a hotel, was, yeah, this is probably what you'll be doing. And I was like, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, all right, I'll do that. And then I got there and I was like, no, <laughs> I was cooking right away. And for thousands of people, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a learning experience for me. I I hated it. Like right when I got there, I was just like, "This isn't real cooking." My grandma cooks real food. This mm-hmm. is BS. Um, and they were trying to change things and trying to make things more nutritional. But there was still a lot of things we were pulling out of cans and out of the freezer. I mean, when you're on an aircraft carrier and you're suited up for a six month deployment, yeah. you have two, maybe two months worth of food and it's rationed perfectly, it's a Tetris game that you wouldn't even be able to think of, the way they load these ships up and and how the meals are planned out. So you go into the cooler and you know exactly where these things are, and as you're entering the cooler out, like, in the freezer... You're not worried about what's seasonal at that point. (laughs) No, no, but you do have it according to what is planned for that menu. Yeah. So it's very very systematic. Um, But I hated it, and, you know, I called my mom, like, I think it was... Seven months in, I was like, I hate this. I'm ready to go. She's like, you can't go. And I was like, I can go. She's like, no, that's AWOL, Chad. Like, you go to jail for that. Mm-hmm. Like, not just jail, but like military jail. They're going to break big rocks into little rocks in Leavenworth. It's not a good idea. She's like, what is your what is your problem? Why are you having such a difficult time with this? And I was like, it's not easy. She's like, nothing's easy in life, Chad. <laughs> She's like, don't you, I mean, you're one of the best artists that was in your school. And you're the only artist that was failing his art class because you just weren't applying yourself. You need to put your head down and get to work, you know? And I was so frustrated with her advice. And <clears throat> but she said one thing that like really resonated with me. And she asked me basically, what, what do you put food on? And I said, I don't know, like a, a white plate. And she goes, don't you see, Chad, that's a canvas. Just paint on it with food. You're a beautiful artist. Use food as your art. You know, and it was just like the light bulb came on. And I think, I don't know if I would have done it on my own just from that, but my mom really followed through. Yeah. And she started sending me books that were like very colorful. She knew I was a picture guy. Mm. So she would send me books that had beautiful pictures of food. Yeah. And she's like, just try these recipes out. You know, like I understand you can't do it at work, but maybe you can do it at home. So you, oh, okay. So that, that was my next question is if you had any freedom with the limited ingredients that you had to do something maybe a little bit different. Depended where you were. Yeah. And what kitchen you worked in in the Navy. So some of that stuff you could kind of mess around on your own time. Mm-hmm. And then you figured out ways to kind of tweak and, and get creative when you could within right. the confines of what you were given. Yeah. Because it's very systematic on how the meals are. I mean, it's based on nutrition, it's based on protein, starches, so on and so forth, and these people need to get these specific sure. meals so they can perform their jobs properly, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of physical, you know, strenuous jobs, even in the Navy, you know, guys that are on their feet for 16 hours and they're running chains back and forth and they're launching jets and you know, it's, it's, it's some tough work. It's the Navy. And even in the, even in the kitchen, I mean, we're cooking for 16 hours, like yeah. for thousands of people. I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's no walk in the park. To be honest with you, when I got out of the military, I was like, oh, this is cakewalk yeah, yeah. in terms of workload. Yeah. But learning the skills is a completely different skill set. So um, when I started in general mess, 
No, there mm-hmm. was no deviating. If you deviated from a recipe, you get ass kicked, right? Mm-hmm. But as I like moved up and I got the chief's mess, the chiefs were like, hey, listen, we run this, this boat. We want things the way we want them. Yeah. I want you to make something special for me. So you know? that's like your first like personal chef kind of like experience. Exactly, yeah. But you're doing it with a guy who hates your guts for like, I mean, he doesn't really hate you, but he acts like he hates you. Yeah, yeah. So I started to learn how to like, you know, be a little bit more creative. This guy, I knew this chief liked something spicy, so I add something spicy to this. And I knew this chief liked stuff with cheese, and I know this chief over here really liked like shrimp and mandarin oranges and coconut and spinach, you know. Mm-hmm. And so like, I would I would tailor to these people, you know. And uh, and I started to build a relationship. And then as I did better and better there, then I went up to the wardroom and I worked for the officers. Mm-hmm. And then I would do, you know, special requests, especially for the guys during like mid rats. The guys who were the, the JOs that were flying the jets, you know, they'd come down and they'd be hungry. They'd have, like, stuff all over their face. They smell like JP5. Like, they're just, they're tired. You know, they've been doing night ops, like, just flying circles around the ship. Yeah. Landing, taking off, landing, taking off. And uh, they'd be like, oh, you know, CS1 or CS3 white could just make me something amazing. Like, I need, like something so big it's just gonna put me to sleep you know and I'd be making like one-eyed jacks but it'd be like a four-eyed jacks it'd be like four patties and four eggs and four pieces of bread and it's just like you know I should have been handing it to them with a side of angioplasty <laughs> and uh, you know you'd get in trouble if you did like this too much you know but I you know I I had a blast with it they allowed me to be creative anytime there was like a special wardroom dinner so if they would have a guest on the ship, sometimes we'd have people that would fly in on a cod, and they'd land, they'd be like, maybe a diplomat, or some teachers, or some movie stars that are coming out to do some like morale building with us, um, signing t-shirts or a band playing. I was the one that was cooking for them. <clears throat> so I would create a, um, a menu, and then that's when I really fell in love with the cooking, because mm-hmm. I was able to just do really cool things. <laughs> Looking back at it, I was creating some shitty food. <laughs> but these people were like, wow, this is amazing. You know, my dad just didn't have techniques down. So that was that was cool. And that's really kind of, I, I literally like fell in love with food. And, you know, like I said, my mom was following up. She was sending me all kinds of like recipes and photos and care packages while I was out to see and books for me to read. And then that helped tailor my cooking style. Yeah. What's the one thing that you had to make a million times on that ship that was like of the mindless variety that you never <coughs> want to have to prepare again? Chili Mac. <laughs> Chili Mac. <clears throat> Basically, would boil off a bunch of noodles in one pot. In another pot, you'd brown off a bunch of meat, like ground beef uh-huh. and onions and like paprika and cumin and coriander and then some like uh, Mexican oregano and then you'd you'd throw in uh, tomato paste by like six number 10 cans full, <laughs> which a number 10 can weighs like eight pounds, right? So you're just like dumping in all this, this tomato paste and you're caramelizing it. And then, and then you add in uh, some, some herbs and then you add in um, uh, water, right? Uh-huh. And then you add in chicken base, right? You didn't have chicken stock. You weren't yeah. making stock from scratch. You yeah, were using yeah. a base. <coughs> Then you would cook that down into a nice thick sauce uh, with like fresh, ca- not fresh, canned diced tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And then once that was like reduced down into like a good sauce, then you'd add in the macaroni. Yeah. And this is in like a hundred 
150-gallon steam jacket in a kettle. I can't even picture that. It was ridiculous. Think about cooking with a boat oar. <laughs> That's what it was. We used a paddle the size of a boat oar. And you're just like, just going at it, like, yeah. as hard as you can. Like, it was, like, when, the, especially when the meat's frozen, like, I didn't have enough strength or body weight. I was, like, 180 pounds soaking weight. Now I'm 220. You can handle it now. But I would literally try to, like, pull down on the paddle underneath, like, 130 pounds of meat. Yeah. And it would lift me off the ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, it was wild. But you would have seven steam jacket kettles going with six different types of food. So you'd be maybe you'd be doing, like, chili mac here. You'd be doing, like, a tuna casserole here. You'd be doing uh, some, like, mashed potatoes over here. I mean, it was just, it was wild. And I'm not talking like mashed potatoes, like we eat mashed potatoes. Right. I'm talking like powdered mashed potatoes. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it was, it was an experience. Um, I, I wouldn't change it for anything. I yeah. think that it's definitely instilled a lot of like discipline, a lot of <clears throat> integrity, a lot of hard work. Um, that when I got out of the military, I was shining ahead of other people. Mm-hmm. I was a much better leader. Um, it was much more focused, whereas the rest of these guys are like, you know, they think like their their job's so hard. And I was yeah. just like, yeah, one hour. Yeah, I'm gonna give you one hour, and and you're gonna come back here and be like, oh yeah, what do we got to get done? Yeah, because it was way different. What was the <coughs> level of fear during that time? Fear of being in the military? <clears throat> yeah, because you're right after 9/11, the war's starting. Uh, you know, shortly thereafter. I, I know just being at home, it, there was just kind of some... Well, the thing was, you know, you... you I didn't ship out mm-hmm. to boot camp until February. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you... February 12th is when I left. Okay. So, it was almost, you know... Th- it was almost, what? September, October, November, December, January, February. It was almost five months after I enlisted that mm-hmm. I even went to boot camp. Because mm-hmm. they were enlisting so many people. <clears throat> then, you get to boot camp, and boot camp is... I think it was 90 days, right? So I was finishing boot camp Easter day. I finished boot camp. And then I went to culinary school in San Antonio, Texas, Lackland Air Force Base. And that was another 90 days. So by the time I got to San Diego, it was July, Mm -hmm. almost July. And for my first ship. And I mean, everybody already figured out like, what had happened? It was a it was a, a war in Afghanistan, and the danger was like really low hmm. because n- and now it's it's nine months or sorry like five or six months after no it's been nine months since mm-hmm. the actual uh, the the towers were brought down mm-hmm. so the threat was gone. We, we weren't worried about people coming in and and attacking us. I mean we were still on kind of like a high threat. Um, on the bases, but yeah. it was it wasn't like it was like day one. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, and being in the navy on a ship, you know, yeah, we're a target, but how many ships were bombed? I mean, the USS Cole was bombed, right? So that was <clears throat> that was a that was a big deal. Um, and uh, um. Other than that, it was just like the, the threat kept getting less and less and less, and then we started to see like DEFCON, you know, starting to go down from like five to four to three to two, you know, and then 
Liberty was open. Now we could go to Mexico if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Like so, like the threat just wasn't as as scary as I thought it was going to be in the beginning. I think obviously right when I first got on the the plane to go to Chicago, I was like, "Oh, this is real." Yeah. You know, you get off the you get off the bus and you land at the recruit depot and you got some guy telling you that you're the biggest piece of shit in the world and get off the bus and then to kick your teeth in. I was like, "Holy shit! What did I just do?" I'm I'm here to help, bro. I'm not I'm not part of the problem. <laughs> Why are you angry at me? You know what I mean? Like I'm ready to get gung ho, but like don't yeah. shit, you know? Yeah. And there was a lot of people that couldn't handle it. Yeah. I mean I struggled with just being called a dog and a clown and a piece of shit day in, day out. It's it's just you get they beat you down and then they build you back up. Yeah. You know? And I understand there's some psychology to that. Yeah. You know. Um, I may have used that on a few of my cooks. I was going to say you can handle a bad review now, can't you? I can handle, yeah, I can handle a lot. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I did the fear. The fear wasn't as great as I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. I think I was, I think I was more afraid in boot camp than I was ever afraid in the military. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you did what? Four years. Four years. Four years. Um, and then. Uh, was it the Hotel Del Mar? Hotel Del Coronado. Del Coronado. Yeah, I did an externship there. And uh, I did so well in my externship that I was offered a position in their fine dining kitchen. Mm. <clears throat> and then uh, and then just worked my way up the ranks um, for two and a half years. I got out of the military. I put in for an early out because the threat was gone. Mm-hmm. There were so many people in the military. They were, they were discharging people. Like and starting early retirement for people because they just needed they needed yeah. people out of the military they they weren't able to fund it anymore yeah. so I put in a package for an early out got the early out took the job worked my way up in uh, some fine dining kitchens worked for a chef um, under Thomas Keller with Per Se um, you know then went on to Hilton Hotels became an executive chef of the hotel learned a lot about management. Um, understanding the finances and being on an executive committee and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> managing all different kinds of outlets from golf course to pool bar to banquets to the three restaurants to the spa, like all that stuff. Yeah. And then I went back into fine dining uh, for about nine months and then I opened up my own catering company and I started doing catering for a lot of like very wealthy people in, in San Diego and developed a, a phenomenal friendship with a lady uh, who was very big in uh, advocating for like uh, natural and organic farm and helping write policies to make those farms be able to operate Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of the policies that were in place made it very hard for the farmer to do uh, organic farming because of all the large farming agricultural Mm -hmm. uh, influence, you know, up from politics all the way down to to the worker, right? Um, and so she introduced me to a lot of her friends. I started catering for her and her friends. And I started doing the Sundance Film Festival and the Kentucky Derby and LA Fashion Week and after parties at the Grammys. I started to like really kind of like make a name for myself. And I started doing even more charity work. I co-founded a, a charity called Hunger at Home. Um, and we worked with a lot of the local food banks and distribution centers um, to help raise awareness. Well, raise money to raise awareness um, to help provide meals. Uh, our focus was mostly on uh, the working poor and homeless children who are hungry. So we worked with the Backpack Program, Champions for Change, No Kid Hungry, Feeding America, San Diego Food Bank, 211, which is a service that we have here. Um, 
and all those kinds of things. Um, and then I, I just got to be a partner in a restaurant, um, made a very big name for myself as a seafood maverick in San Diego, won a bunch of awards, was on uh, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman when I was doing things like sea urchin gelato. What do you have to eat? And, uh, sea urchin gelato, uh, which is uh, basically fish ice cream. Um, I did black cod liver foie gras. I did uh, black cod egg batarga. I did swordfish bone marrow. Like we, we just gave him a lot of really cool things. But the thing was, is he loved it, and I made a name for myself in San, Di- in San Diego serving these items uh-huh. because I was taking things that the fishmongers were just throwing in the trash and turning them into delicacies. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I started working with uh, Brian Malarkey, who was on season three Top Chef finalist. We opened a restaurant together called Gabardine. Really cool restaurant specialized in just doing very creative, weird mm-hmm. Portuguese style food. And then I moved on from that project, opened up a restaurant called Craft Pizza Company, and it's a fast food, uh, more health conscious style pizza, mm-hmm. um, New York style. Um, in the food court, we st- I still operate that today. And then literally a month later, I opened a restaurant in Tijuana, Mexico, uh, focusing on a lot of like Baja gastro bar features using, uh, you know, dishes that are very rich in culture, mm-hmm. um, but kind of putting my twist and flair into it without desecrating the sure. culture itself. Um, and then I wanted to bring that same thing I was doing there across to San Diego because I had received such a great response by the Mexican community. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Americans need to taste this that are afraid to go to Mexico. And uh, so I opened it up and we did great. We won, you know, Chef of the Year. We won awards um, as runner-up for like best new restaurant, um, best bar program, uh, best design, like all these different things. It was such a great time for me, and uh, I joined Top Chef, thinking uh-huh. that it would help the business. The business was struggling; we we're losing like twenty grand a month, and uh, I couldn't figure out what was going on, where the money was bleeding from. I would, I wasn't in charge of any kind of financial responsibilities other than like purchasing product and selling the product. And um, I went on Top Chef, and as I'm on Top Chef, the business is just literally dive bombing. It's crashing, right? My publicist is posting things all over the internet that I'm in Mexico and like doing all this research so I can come back and like re-innovate our menu and and all these ideas. And people are just like, why isn't the chef here, blah, 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 blah. The business is failing, failing, failing. And you can't have any connection with anybody. Zero connection. I talked to my business partner once and I talked to my daughters once. That's it. Hmm. I had no other outside conversations. Um, And then while I'm on the show and they assured me like everything's great, everything's going great because they didn't want, they didn't want me to screw up. They wanted me to do great. They want me to come back and like us knock this concept out of the park. And rightfully so, that I feel like that was the right move for them to do it. Um, but I was gone for seven weeks on Top Chef, away from my restaurant. Yeah. A restaurant that was doing $2 million a year in sales. I was literally just put my hands up and let my staff run it without me even being there. Yeah. <clears throat> Restaurants are nosediving. I came back, they're like, hey, we need you to change this concept. We're going street food only, cheap tacos, cheap tostadas, cheap snacks, like that's what we're gonna do. I did that, the city, rejected me they were like why would you do that why would you change it we love this stuff hmm. and uh nothing got better i mean we we minimized the amount of money that we were losing yeah but it wasn't enough to make a difference to save the business so after 18 months voting that business we tanked it yeah i was sued 
upwards of like $113,000 in the last 11 months For because I signed personal guarantees, uh, which is the dumbest thing any chef could ever do. I don't care what you're thinking. With do who? Not, In, uh, like investors? Vendors. Vendors. So like we had a $40,000 seafood bill. Uh, we had a, uh, another $20,000 seafood bill. We had a $16,000 linen bill. We had this and that. And then obviously they go to collections because I don't have the money to pay for them, then they go to a lawsuit, and then a judgment, and then all of a sudden my garnishes are getting, you know. So yeah. it was a it was a, a pretty interesting situation, and then obviously making the move up here. Yeah. Um, but you know, we've I've crawled up from the rubble, <laughs> and I I keep kicking. I have a lot of tenacity, and I believe in what I can do, and. I learned a very valuable lesson um, in partnership and business, and it's made me a, such a better business owner, and uh, and I'm, I'm able to manage my team a lot better. The, the group that I have here is absolutely phenomenal. I have yeah. two high school students that work for me. Uh, I got them out of the Pro Start program through LC, um, and then I have some uh, two other veteran you know, cooks. Well, Matt McCaskey's not far from a high school student. No. So. Yeah, yeah, he's still a little young. <laughs> but he's, I'll tell you what, that guy works his chops off. Yeah. And, uh, and he has a lot of respect and a lot of integrity in my kitchen. Yeah. And uh, he's saving me money, he's saving me time, and he's saving me a lot of headaches. Yeah. So, and, it's, and he's happy. Yeah. So it's, it's good to see him in here doing things. And I got another guy named Eric who is phenomenal. <clears throat> really good guy. He used to own a business himself, got in some trouble. Um, kind of revitalized his life um, and, and I applaud him for that and, and the girls you know I got this girl named Kendra she's graduating high school this year and Lexi who's actually out of town right now she's in South Carolina competing for nationals for the Pro Star program that I mentor oh cool so I'm very proud of of the team that I have here and it's uh, the city has embraced Zona Blanca which is great because um Ceviche, and I've I've read quotes from you, just like true ethnic cuisine. Like there's, you can get great pizza, mm -hmm. great gastro pubs. Mm -hmm. Churchill's is one of the best steaks I've ever had in my life. Yeah, but finding like very well done international fare can be difficult. Well, there's no, there's no like real. I mean, I don't want to say there's no. I yeah. haven't discovered sure. yeah, any yeah. real. It doesn't matter what ethnic yeah background it is. I mean, there is some. Mm -hmm. La Michoacana does a good job. De Leonis does a good job, uh -huh. right? Is it the best Mexican food I've ever had? No, it's not. Yeah. But we're thousands of miles away from Mexico, and yeah. we have people in the city that dictate what they feel the food should taste like. Sure. I don't like cilantro. I don't like sour cream. This is too spicy. Well, this is what the cuisine is. Yeah. It's like when you go in a Chinese restaurant and they have a cheeseburger on the menu. That cheeseburger is not going to be good, and why it's on the menu, I don't understand. Yeah. I'm not going there for a cheeseburger. I want to go there for the kung pao chicken. Well, and you guys are <coughs> a ceviche place too, so it's even further down that oh. road because you're not just slinging tacos and burritos. And, and it's a concept that's, that's never been done here. Yeah, it's food that 70% of our clientele that come through the doors don't even know existed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, oh, I, I think I've, I've heard of ceviche before. Yeah. It's, it's this, right? I'm like, no, it's not that at all. Try this. Whoa, yeah. that's amazing. I've never had it before. And I cannot tell you how many people come through the door and say, I don't like seafood. Mm -hmm. Really, you don't? You don't like seafood at all? Like, you just have a bad experience with it? Like, 
well, I guess the only seafood I really like is salmon because it's not fishy. Sure. And then I like I go cross-eyed and I'm like, do you understand that fish flavor comes from fat? Mm-hmm. Salmon is one of the most fattiest, oiliest <laughs> fishes in the ocean next to mackerel. Yeah. It is the fishiest fish. And you're telling me that you like that over a lean fish like tuna? Yeah. Maybe you do like fish. Yeah. Maybe you just don't like fish that doesn't taste like fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and you just haven't had it in a way that's prepared the way you yeah. guys do it. It's and well. our product that we're bringing in is stellar. Yeah. It's good product. It's well managed. We're not, we're not de, you know, defrosting like hundreds of pounds of fish and sure. letting it sit in a refrigerator for months on months. Like you're getting as fresh as it can get. Like we prepare our fish every single day. Mm-hmm. Our sauces are prepared in-house. We're not buying product from anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the only thing we don't make in house is our tostadas and our bread, yeah, and our mayonnaise. Yeah, like I like best foods mayonnaise. It's it's the best. And those are like the tostadas. The tostadas are from foods. De Leon, aren't they? No, the tostadas I get from Winco. And the uh, tortas, aren't they from a local place? Yes, they're from uh, Le Petit Chat. And so we worked very closely with them in, in developing this bread because it was something they hadn't made before. Yeah. And we wanted them to create a Talera bread, <coughs> which is one of many forms of. Some they'll use a bolillo, mm-hmm. some they'll use tolera, some will use more like a, a French style or a, or a um, uh, there's another bread that I can't think of right now, focaccia mm-hmm. style bread, yeah. uh, depending on where you are in Mexico, uh, for their tortas. And this is the one that I like the best. The, the bread's great. It crisps up on the outside. It's super doughy and delicious and fluffy on the inside. Um, I don't think I've ever had a single person walk through the door and not walk back in and say, bro, that sandwich is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, we, we have great product here and, and there's a lot of integrity and everybody in the kitchen is loving their job uh, and, and it shows. I mean, we have four and a half stars on Yelp. I've never had four and a half stars on Yelp in any restaurant. Then again, most restaurants that I've done in the past have had very kind of like unique sure. menu items. But what does that say about ceviche? Ceviche is the most unique menu item in Spokane right now. Oh, yeah. So it's great. We're doing yeah. wonderful. Uh, lastly, what's next? I know I'm going to be a little bit disappointed in your answer because you know what I want the answer to be because we've talked about it. We don't need to get yeah. into that. But there, what can you there, tell us? There are things that I'm looking to do in the city. Um, I have a couple different ideas on some fun concepts. Um, one will involve oysters. One will involve a sandwich, one specific sandwich. I'm not going to touch on what it is. And then probably a secret bar. Mm. Um, And that's kind of where I'm at. I think that I want to eventually move, um, or not move, but develop another Zona Blanca in Liberty Lake. I think it's a good market for it. Uh, A lot of people have been asking for it. Um, I think that I need to speak with some people about some property over there um but you know that's probably you know a year and a half two years down the road Mm. the other things are a little bit more uh closer um but yeah no i I definitely am laying roots down in this area i plan on buying a house i plan on staying here at least for 10 years Mm. um which is a very long time for a restaurant (laughs) so um i love what i'm seeing in this city <coughs> it's crazy. I tell people all the time, like it's crazy the amount of good food. I mean, you would have, you would have, getting better. You'd have better perspective than I would, yeah. just because in your travels and, and being in the industry. But for me, as somebody that lives in a city this size, to be able to at any night think of like ten really good restaurants I go to off the top of my head, 
I mean, that's hard in any city. It's hard in any city. Yeah. We are no Portland. We are no Seattle. We're no San Diego. But we have to start somewhere. And the movement has started. Yeah. And you, to, to be honest with you, thanking the breweries in this city. Yeah. I mean, they're popping up left and right, and they're producing phenomenal beers. Yeah. And you're in a yeah, tap room. Yeah. I'm in a tap room. I mean, Young Buck, Little Spokane, uh-huh. and TT's Old Iron Brewing, they're right here inside of our yeah. building, brewing beer. And I'm seeing their tap handles all over the city in, in other bars. And within two blocks, you have Orleson, River City Red, and Iron Goat. Yeah. So many different really good breweries. Um, new Steam Plant. Right, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then you head a little bit further uh, east, you know, and up on the South Hill. I mean, there's just in the valley. There's there's some cool brew pubs popping up. You know, it's 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 great to see the city moving in a direction. And I feel like we owe the brewing the brewing community, the the beer makers, a lot of thanks to that. Yeah. I mean, where there is drink, there needs to be food. Mm-hmm. You know. And um, I'm, I'm hoping to see that some people that I know outside of the city and state will find what I'm doing valuable and say, maybe it'd be a good idea for me to come up there and open something yeah. because we need more. We need more culture in the city for food. Um, we need more creativity. And we need some of these building owners that own these buildings to understand that, like, make it easy for us to get in and, and open a project. Sure. You know what I mean? Don't make it so hard. Stop... You know, stop bow garden. If your building is 70% unoccupied, get somebody in there at a lower rate and then raise it over time. Yeah. But get these people in, get them successful making money, and then you can start taking money from them. Yeah. But some of these some of these buildings in this city, they cost just as much as they do in downtown Seattle, Portland, and San Diego. Yeah. So some of these building owners that are holding on to their properties really need to go, hey, are we going to be a part of the solution or part of the problem? Sure. And I think... If the city starts to communicate that way and they start, de- the people who are developing the city and own these buildings go, we're here for the long run and we want to see the city grow into something really amazing. Yeah. If they start doing that, the city is going to grow. Yeah. It's just there's not, there's, there's a few yeah. situations. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you here. I love the place. I love the tap room. I mean, I walked here for my place. You know, whether I'm getting lunch or just want to get a beer or a good yeah. cocktail, like it's nice having play some shuffleboard or something like that. It's it's just cool to see more and more of those places pop up. So excited to see whatever. Absolutely. Next. I mean, I live downtown. I play downtown. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> downtown's doing a great job. The city is doing a phenomenal job of making it safe for people. Um, I'm just I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's home. It feels great. Yeah. yeah. Good to see Thank you. you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Absolutely.